May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. As many of you will be aware, if you've been here this summer, over these months I've been preaching on the stories of our deep origins as told in the book of Genesis. And tonight marks the eighth and final sermon in that series. In just eight weeks, the lectionary has had us consider four generations of the family line which begins with Abraham and Sarah, basically by jumping in and out of about 23 chapters of the narrative. Last Sunday, we were introduced to Joseph, Jacob's favorite son of all of his 12 sons. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, the narrator had told us, and he had made a richly ornamented robe for him. This favored status, combined with the fact that Joseph kept having these dreams, that suggested that, it, that one day his brothers would all bow down before him, dreams that Joseph insisted on telling his brothers all about, well, those things together had caused those brothers to quite utterly loathe him. And their rather drastic solution was to sell Joseph to traveling merchants, who take him to Egypt, where he is sold as a slave to Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And the brothers, they cook up a lie for their father Jacob. They convince Jacob that Joseph has been killed by wild beasts, the only thing left of him his blood-spattered robe. That's where we left the story off last week. Now, at first, as a slave in Potiphar's household, things go not too badly for Joseph. Until Potiphar's wife takes rather a fancy to him. And Joseph refuses all of her increasingly persistent advances. She gets so miffed that she actually accuses him of trying to seduce her. The Hebrew servant, she tells her husband, whom you have brought us, came in to me to insult me. And Potiphar is so outraged at what Joseph has done toward his wife that he has him tossed into the royal prison. It is in the royal prison that Joseph's gift as an interpreter of dreams, not just as a dreamer himself, but as an interpreter begins to surface. He is an able interpreter of the dreams of two of his fellow prisoners, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker, both of whom had committed some infraction that had landed them in the prison. He does it so ably that word of Joseph's gift makes its way up to Pharaoh himself. You see, the Pharaoh has been troubled by some perplexing dreams. He knew they were significant, but he had no idea as to their meaning. And so he brings Joseph up to hear them out. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you 
that you can hear a dream and can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's one of the first indications in the Joseph stories that God is at work, that this is more than just a tale of Joseph and his brothers. Well, when Pharaoh tells his two dreams, Joseph hears them as a warning, a warning that a severe famine is coming, that there will be first seven good years of harvest, followed by seven very, very bad years. Now, therefore, Joseph continues, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. He's launched, in short, a kind of a grain management plan that's going to provide surplus to get them through the bad years. Well, Pharaoh is impressed. He's impressed by Joseph's interpretation of his dreams, but he's also impressed by this presentation. Who better than this wise interpreter to oversee the whole works? And so, just like that, Joseph is raised from the status of an enslaved prisoner to that of senior official. And sure enough, Joseph's dream interpretation was accurate. Seven good years are followed by seven years of famine. And yet his grain management system protects Egypt from the worst of it. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, and here's one of those great plot twists so typical of these narratives in Genesis. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, there is also a famine. Jacob, with his sons and his extended family, Jacob has received news that Egypt has great storehouses of grain. And so he sends ten of his sons on a mission to plead for assistance from the Pharaoh. When the ten sons arrive, who do you suppose they have an audience with? But Joseph. Joseph, however, is now clean-shaven, dressed like an Egyptian. He's been away from them for several years, and he has with him an interpreter. Joseph doesn't even speak their language with them. He pretends not to know it. He instantly knows who they are, but they don't see who he is. For the next three chapters, Joseph will actually toy with them. It's a bit like watching a cat with a bug, the way he just toys with them. He first accuses them of being spies. Then he holds Simeon, one of the brothers, as a prisoner, sends the rest of them back to Canaan so that they can get Benjamin, the only son who's not come. 
When they return with Benjamin, he sets them up to look like thieves, and he actually takes Benjamin as a prisoner. In other words, before they get to this evening's story of reconciliation, Joseph seriously messes with their minds. As Cameron Howard Riley observes in her commentary on these narratives, before Joseph weeps on their necks, he plays on their fears and exploits imperial power over them. His actions may not constitute intentional revenge, but they are certainly not worthy of a Hallmark card either. Yet there comes this point where Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. So he clears them out, sends out the one who's been acting as interpreter, sends them all out, and stands finally facing his brothers alone, and he says to them, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you, he says to them. And right away he begins to set in place the plans to have the whole clan move from famine-weakened Canaan into the security of Egypt. You shall live in the region of Goshen, and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all of you, and bring my father down here quickly. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you, he said. A sentiment, a theological statement, really, that he will repeat in a slightly different form in the closing chapter of Genesis, when he says... Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. Even though you, my brothers, intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. Now it's Walter Brueggemann's view that the whole narrative hinges on the conviction that God is free and that God is at work for his purpose in spite of through and against every human effort. Against what Brueggemann calls an easy humanism that entirely separates God's work from ours, this narrative affirms that the arena of human choice is precisely where God's saving work is done. That's actually a big part of the whole message of the bulk of the book of Genesis, that the arena of human choice, our world, is precisely where God's saving work is done. Not that there isn't such a thing as a harmful choice, not that we don't do damage to one another, because we do. Not that our choices aren't very, very real, or that our identities are somehow irrelevant, as if we were so many 
chess pieces on the divine playing board, moved around by God's whim. No, no, not at all. At the heart of these narratives is this insistence that God can work with real human persons, with all of their limits and in all of their troubling freedom. In Genesis 12, God calls an aging Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, and says to them, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. An aging, childless couple as the parents of a great nation. And God says... I can work with that. An increasingly complicated family system, dysfunctional as all get out, marked by parents showing rank favoritism to particular children, brothers cheating and turning on each other, and deception and con games apparently hardwired into the family's way of doing things. And again and again and again, the word God speaks over the whole mess is, I can work with that. It's primary theology in Genesis, but it doesn't end there. A stuttering and fearful man named Moses, a grief-stricken and barren woman named Hannah, a shepherd boy named David, reluctant and cranky prophets Amos and Jeremiah, a conquered, utterly humiliated and exiled nation under the iron rule of Babylon. I can work with that, God says. And it keeps rolling forward. A motley group of 12 Galileans, a bunch of uneducated fishermen, a tax collector, a revolutionary zealot named Simon, along with a group of women followers, some with rather questionable reputations. And Jesus says, I can work with that. A best friend nicknamed Peter, the Rock, who in the hour of crisis pretended he didn't even know Jesus, and a Pharisee named Saul, who wanted to track down every last one of his followers, I can work with them too. 120 people gathered on an August evening in a prairie city half a world away from where these events all took place, some coming with much belief and some with little, some who've tried to follow and some who fear that they have only failed. I can work with that. This is the word spoken over us, through these ancient stories of our forebears. God can work with them. God can work with us, even us, in our strivings and our occasional successes, in our foibles and in our failings. Even us. I can work with that. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.